Well, happy Father's Day. I am going to give you the single greatest Father's Day sermon you will ever hear. So take some notes. Short, sweet. I do it every single time I preach on Father's Day. And dads, I want you to listen because this is just for you and it will revolutionize your life. And there's four points and they're quick. All right? Four things that you will do as a father that will change your life forever, right? The first one is this, fall in love with Jesus. No matter what you do above your wife, above your children, above your work, above your life, pursue a relationship that falls in love with Jesus, period. Number two, kiss your wife. I mean, right on the mouth. Now, if she says no, wait, all right? That'll get you in more trouble. But she says okay, make sure every single day you plant one right on her grill, right? No matter how long you've been married, or how soon you are in your marriage. Just smooch her right on the face. Three is hug your children, especially when they tell you not to. Just squeeze them. Never let them go, even when they're old. Just squeeze them, squeeze them, squeeze them, right? So, and then four, don't be that guy. That guy that's too old, too young, too political, too stoic, too cool, too whatever. Just don't be that guy. Too angry, too whatever. Just don't be the person that no one wants to be around, right? Love Jesus Kiss your wife, hug your kids, don't be that dude. You will be changed forever. All right, so tuck that in your pocket, all right? File that away. You can tune out for the rest of this stuff, but that's what you need to hear. Actually, you're probably not going to want to. This one's going to mess you up a little bit. So here's the problem with what we're doing today. Paul won't stop. So he's not done just lambasting us about some really important things. So if you've been with us for any point in time, we have been 30 weeks in the book of Ephesians. We have gone, basically, it's taken us three weeks to get through four verses in chapter five. We are at a snail's pace, and we are not hitting the gas yet, because Paul is not done. But chapter five throws us into this really intense conversation in which Paul calls us something that is both beautifully possible and almost impossible at the same time. He calls us to become imitators of God. Now, impossible on our own, yet fully possible with God, we are called to imitate the behavior, the love, and the forgiveness of Christ, and we explored that. And then in verses 3 and 4, he begins to explain what that looks like. <clears throat> the things that come inside and go on inside our heart, and the things that come outside of our mouth. He call, says if we're going to be imitators of God, <clears throat> there are some things that have to transpire. And he gives us two lists, and we looked at them in two different weeks. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first list. We says, among you, there must not even be a hint, right? If you're going to be an imitator of God, among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, impurity, or greed for those who are improper for God's holy people. And we explored what that looked like. We talked about the idea of sexual immorality being any sexual act that takes place outside the sanctity of marriage. And marriage defined biblically is between one man and one woman in which they become one flesh. We talked about impurity and the battle that goes on in our mind and the way that we're called to think about things that are pure and holy and lovely and push out moral filth and decay and pornography and things like that from our lives. And the idea of ridding ourselves of greed, which is a cancer of the heart that says, God, you are not enough, right? I deserve more and I need more, both sexually and or materially. We explored those things. And the second week, we look at the second list in which Paul talks about things that come out of our mouths, right? He said, among you, there must not even be a hint of obscenity or coarse joking or filthy language, right? That we're called to rid ourselves of those poisonous things that come out of our heart and poison the lives of the people around us. So we explore those in depth. What's coarse joking? What's filthy language? What's obscenity, right? We got into those different pieces. In the end of those two verses, Paul puts this little piece together where he says, instead of all of those things, Pursue thanksgiving. 
And we talked about this great exchange that Paul always calls us to, right? Never about just getting rid of behavior for the sake of getting rid of behavior, but it's always about the exchange. So what if I could rid myself of impurity and immorality and greed and, of course, joking and, and obscenity and filth, and I could exchange it for gratitude and a deep, deep love and longing that just says, God, you are so good. Like, I'm so grateful that I get to draw breath today. I want to exchange the garbage in my life for something great. I spent the past two weeks there. Well, this morning, Paul's not done. He's actually going to keep riding this train a little bit longer because he wants us to understand the consequences involved in these behaviors. And so he's not done with sexual immorality. He's not done with impurity. He's not done with greed. And he's going to give us a really powerful truth, a really stern warning, and a vital command. And these things have consequences. And so this morning, we're going to explore those consequences at length, and we're going to walk away looking at the why God is calling us out of them, and not just what they are, but the detriment that happens to our lives, our marriages, and our families if we don't. So if you got your Bible, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in 5, 6, and 7 today. And then next week, I promise we're getting into a lot more light, but today Paul's going to step on our necks a little bit. And uh, it's always good. Never, never, never terrible. Let's take a quick moment. We've already prayed a lot this morning, but we can never pray too much. Let's just ask God to teach our hearts, and then we will we'll jump right in the middle of this stuff. Lord, you are good. We love you. Your word is true, and we trust it. Even when it says things that are hard and that the world wants to shudder from and that we don't always want to hear, it doesn't make it less true. So speak to our hearts this morning, even in those difficult places. Take a moment in your own heart this morning and just say, God, teach me. Whatever that means, God, teach my heart. If I need to hear something, tell me. Just whisper those things to the Lord. Lord, teach me. If I need to hear it, tell me what it is. Ask God to teach you this morning. And take a moment and pray for someone beside you, around you. Maybe a good time to pray for the old dad in your life that's sitting there. Be in the habit of praying for the people around you. Pray that God would move in them. Care about their spiritual development, growth. Pray that God would convict them. Pray for your church. Lord, we turn our morning over to you. You get all of it. You are so, so good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've recapped those first four verses. Let's jump into chapter 5. I mean, in cha- yeah, verse f- chapter 5, verse 5. We'll go down through three verses, and we'll see what we're talking about. This is what Paul says, right? On the, on the heels of, amongst you, there must not even be a hint of sexual morality or any kind of impurity or greed, because they are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Here's where we are this morning. For this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not partner with them. It's a real lame this morning. It is a couple of quick punches because Paul is not mixing words. This morning he is very direct. Right? And again, you got to keep in mind, this is like, for Paul, these seven verses are like less than 30 seconds of talking. And we've explored them, right, over the course of what will be three weeks. So 
These are coming on the heels. Boom, 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 boom. Now it feels like we're dragging it out, but Paul's following these thoughts up and he's saying, don't do these things, don't do these things. Instead, do this. And let me tell you why these things are so detrimental. And he launches out with this singular truth, right? And you can see it right away. And that singular truth is this. No unrepentant person, right? No unrepentant, sexual, immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you'll notice I inserted a little, little preacher's emphasis there, right? If you were paying attention, I inserted the word unrepentant. And I'll tell you why in a moment. It's not that Paul left it out. It's that I don't want you to miss it, okay? But here's the truth. The first coarse, hard, profound truth that Paul says is that no sexually immoral no impure and no greedy person will inherit the kingdom of God. And he basically sets it up by saying, for this you can be sure. So here is this truth, and he's not mixing any words. He said, pay attention. Take this one to the bank. Put this one in the lockbox. This is true. It is not false. No unrepentant, sexually immoral, impure, greedy person can inherit the kingdom of God. Now, why do I insert the word unrepentant there? It's not that Paul didn't. It's not that Paul didn't mean it. All of his other letters are filled with the entire New Testament is filled with this idea. The church in Ephesus was the most educated of all the Paul's churches. They would have certainly known this, but we need to remember it. Because if, if this word doesn't matter, right, if the word unrepentant isn't in there, we're in real trouble. Because then the truth is every single one of us is going to hell. And I don't say that lightly. If any greedy or immoral or impure, or impure person, right, does not inherit the kingdom of God, then every one of us and every one of the Ephesians and every person that's ever put faith in Christ from the beginning of time until now has no hope. But all throughout the New Testament, there's this idea of confession and repentance. It's woven into the very gospel itself. And this idea of confession is simply this, and they're different, confession and repentance. Confession is this idea that I, I lay out before man and before the, the Lord what I have done wrong. So, right, we get the idea of confession. I have blown it. I have made this mistake. I have engaged in this behavior. I have done this thing. I am confessing it with my mouth. And 1 John chapter 1 tells us that if we confess our sins with our mouth, or if we say them out loud, God is just and he will forgive us. Very clear. The Bible also ties this idea of repentance deeply into confession. The confession is not simply about saying, God, I did something wrong. But the heart of confession is about the confession that leads us to a repentance. And repentance is the turning away of the confessed behavior. It's the movement in the opposite direction. So the idea of repentance is, God, I have made this mistake. I have gauged this behavior. I have, I have blown it. I have done something impure. I've been immoral or I've been greedy or whatever it is. And yet you have convicted me about it, God, and I'm doing everything in my life to turn and walk the other direction, to move in the opposite way. Now, Paul's very strong about this in his letters because he says we can't confess our sin and then keep on sinning. Like, oh, God, forgive me as I'm doing that thing because we're just afraid of the consequence. That type of confession is not true. It's like hedging a bet. We're just trying to say something so we don't feel so bad. Confession and repentance are tied deeply together. And what Paul's getting at is that there is no place in the kingdom of God for the unrepentant, immoral, impure, or greedy person. Now, I'm not making this up. The idea of an unrepentant heart is the blockade to the gospel, right? It is the place that is what God calls us. He calls us to confess and repent and believe that he can save us and that Christ is his son, and that is the key to the gospel. But the unrepentant heart 
right, has this barrier between God and sin. And so what Paul says here is just that, that there is no place in the kingdom of God for the immoral or the impure or the greedy. Now, why does he isolate those sins out, right? Aren't all sins the same? And the answer to that is yes and no. All sins carry the same weight and consequences, but in the economy of God, not all sins carry the same pain and the same hurt. They all separate us from God. But some sins are drastically more devastating than others. We know this. Obviously, if I walk out of here and I take Don's pen or Scott or Mike's pen, and I don't tell them and I steal it, that's still bad. But if I murder their children, probably worse, right? I mean, just in the economy of things. So obviously all these things are wrong, but some carry deeper and more devastating consequences. And that's the reality of sin is that although all of it keeps us from the Lord, some of it has devastating and true consequences that matter more than others. That's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, listen, the unrepentant heart has no place in the kingdom of God. And let me tell you why the unrepentant heart that's tied to immorality and impurity and greed is more dangerous than anything else. And he says it right there in verse 5. He says, because that man or that person is an idolater. Now, idolatry is simply the worship of something or someone other than God like it were God. So if you want the definition of idolatry, it's it's the worshiping of something or someone as if it were God and it's not God. And it is the first of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right? Idolatry is dangerous. Because it elevates something or someone over and in place of the Lord. Sexual immorality, impurity, and greed are the perfect example of will worship. Meaning the worship of myself. The worship of my own pleasure. The worship of my own definitions. When we redefine what God has defined, when we redefine it, and we apply our own definitions and our own self-pleasure, our own desires into it, right? When we exchange those things for what God has set up, we are ultimately saying, God, what I desire, what I long for, and what I feel is more important than what you have established. And therefore, I deserve pleasure. I deserve and want definitions that are better for me. Therefore, I choose to worship me and my definitions or what culture says are those definitions. And it's the ultimate act of idolatry because it says what you said is not enough, but what I say is. And when we elevate those things over the things of God, we break the first commandment that God has established, which is have nothing else that is a God before me. We don't think about impurity like this. We don't think about immorality like this. We don't think about greed like this. We just think about them as simple sins that happen in our lives. But the truth is, they're dangerous and they're radically destructive. And Paul knows it. And he's giving a stern warning to the church. When we begin to elevate our own definitions, saying, I want this, or I want to feel pleasure, or I want to be gratified, or I'm going to redefine marriage, or I am going to do these things, We're basically saying, God, what you have created in the perfect sanctity of sexuality is a gift towards marriage, right? I'm going to react or pull from that, and I'm going to define it myself so that I feel better and so that I fit in. We begin to worship those things. You think impurity is any different? 
we pursue it and chase it like a drug. Greed, we talked about a few weeks ago, essentially at the end of the day, it's just saying, God, what you promise is not enough for me. I deserve more. And Paul ties it to sexual immorality and purity on purpose. Because immorality and impurity in those categories is just simply saying, I want. I want more or differently than what you created. So when you created sex as this gift with inside the beautiful sanctity of marriage, and I want to engage in activity outside of that, I'm saying, God, what you made is not enough. I want it outside of here and for me. And I'm going to get it any way I can, whether that's outside in a relationship or whether it's impurity through pornography or lust or whatever those places and things are. God, what you created is not enough. Therefore, I will create my own. And Paul's saying it's no different than creating a God out of gold. We worship it. And it's idolatry and it's dangerous. Now Paul says there are consequences attached to it. And you know what those consequences are? There is no place for the unrepentant, immoral, impure, or greedy person in the kingdom of God. Whoa. But unrepentance is important. It's really important. Paul talks about it all the time. The church in Ephesus would have got it. I want you to get it. What it means is that if you struggle in these areas, there's an opportunity to repent. God, I blew it. I messed it up. I confess it, and I'm walking away from it. I'm not going to engage anymore. I'm going to fight it. Every day is a new day. This stuff is dangerous, and it's real. So he says this truth. Right? And that's the truth. No unrepentant, immoral, impure, greedy heart will enter the, inherit the kingdom of God. Truth. Boom. And then he follows it up with a warning, as if that weren't a warning enough. Listen to what he says in verse 6. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes for those who are disobedient. Let no one deceive you with empty words. What are empty words? Well, empty words are words that are hollow, words that have no truth behind them, right? Like politicians on a campaign trail. Don't believe anything that they say, right? They're trying to get elected. Both sides, all sides. You know, vote for Pedro. I'll make all your wildest dreams come true. Napoleon Dynamite fan. Everything the world will tell us in regards to these areas are relatively empty. Surely God didn't really say marriage was between a man and a woman. Surely God doesn't want you just to engage in sexual activity in your marriage. I mean, you may not be married till you're 30. Surely God doesn't want that for you. You see those hollow words? Does that sound familiar at all? Does anybody remember Genesis chapter 3? God had created Adam and Eve, and he had stuck them right in the middle of this garden. He gave them one instruction, right? Don't eat from that tree. Listen to verse 1 in chapter 3 of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may Eat from the trees, all the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from this tree, the one that's in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. And then the serpent said, surely you won't die. 
For God knows that when you eat it, you'll just have your eyes opened and you'll become like him. And you'll know things like good and evil. I mean, surely God didn't say. Did he really say that? And Eve says, yeah, yeah, he said that. He said we would die. And the serpent comes back and goes, I mean, surely you're not going to die. Do you see why the serpent's words were empty? Not because they were deceptive. They were empty because they had no consequence. So what does Eve do? She eats the apple, and what happens? Sin and death enter into the entire human picture. Because the consequences were real. The voice of the world was hollow. See, and this is what the world wants to tell you when it comes to immorality, sexual morality, to impurity, to things like greed, that cancer of the heart. Surely, surely God doesn't say that. Surely gender is a construct that we created. Surely marriage isn't just where God wants sexual activity to take place. Surely God just wants you to be happy. Like, like you only live here once. Like, if it pleases you, do it. That's what God would say. And those words sound great. But what's the problem with them? They're hollow. Because they're void of the consequence. But what does Paul say? He says the consequence is incredibly real. Listen to the end of verse 6. He says, Do not be deceived by empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Even though the world says nothing will happen, God says, yes, it will. The world will say it's a victimless crime, or it's not even a crime at all. It's victimless. No one gets hurt. Just do whatever pleases you and don't hurt anybody else. No one, there's no consequence for that. But God's word says there is. That consequence is disobedience. And disobedience leads to death. This is the warning. The world will try and deceive you. And it's working really hard to deceive our children. It's working really hard to tell us, again, I'm not even saying things that are controversial. It's working really hard to tell us that a child at age four can decide their own gender. It's working really hard to tell us that our definitions of sexuality are far too conservative and narrow. That pornography is actually okay. It's not dangerous or harmful. That impurity and greed, those are things we should all have. If you don't have enough, go get more. Store up for yourselves things on earth. Pursue gratification of you. You're only going around this place once. Like, go get it. You deserve it. Surely God didn't say. Or the best is surely God didn't mean. Because no one can, dis- can say that it doesn't say it in here, Right? No one can say that God's word doesn't define it. So the way we get around that from a biblical perspective is to say, well, that's not really what God meant. But it is. Because it's reiterated and reiterated and reiterated and reiterated. And this is what Paul says. Don't let there be a hint of sexual immorality and purity greed among you. How do you get around that? Oh, well, let's redefine things. What is immorality? What is impurity? What is, is, is. Right? It's what we do. And we wordsmith our way into a place where we think 
we're free. The problem is there are consequences. There are consequences, and they're real. So listen to what he says. He's got this powerful truth, right? No unrepentant, immoral, impure, greedy person will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the stern warning. Do not be deceived. The world will call you all kinds of names. It'll tell you you're a bigot. It'll tell you that you're, you're, uh, you're not tolerant. It'll throw all kinds of things at you. And if it can't deceive you, right, it will push you into a place of shame and to a place of fear. But then he gives this vital command. So he follows up with this, this truth, this warning, and this command. Look at verse 7. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. The vital command, do not partner with the world or anyone in it. Think about the idea of the word partner. Partner is, um, well, Meredith, my wife, 26 years of marriage, she's my partner. We share children. We share life. We share goals, we share finances, we share hurts, struggles, joys, all those things. We have this equal share. God has created us into this covenant of marriage by which we are partners. Paul says, don't live in a way that you partner with the world or people in it. Now, he doesn't say don't associate with them, right? If that were the case, we can't associate with anyone who's immoral or impure or greedy. We don't exist in the world, and you can't even hang around the people in this room. We all live in these categories, and we should be in the process of active confession and repentance. But he says don't partner with it. There's a very big difference in association and partnership. I can very much know and be associated and have friends with people in the world and not lock my heart to theirs. Why? Because when you begin to lock your heart and partner with the world, you begin to adapt and identify with their positions. It's just how life goes. We always think it won't happen that way, but it always does. Why? Because the world is deceptive and the father of lies prowls around like a roaring lion. And all he needs is a foothold in your heart to begin to transform and exchange what you know to be truth. For surely God didn't really say that, right? I mean, he didn't mean it at least. I mean, God is love. And we go, yeah. You're hearing all the voices around you. Yeah, well, surely there's no, no hell. I mean, God wouldn't do anything bad. I mean, God's good. When we begin to adopt these voices, when we partner with the world and its people, we like to think a church is impenetrable. It's a disaster. The mainline church as a whole is falling into the abyss of the world. In the swirling hot tubs of culture, it is being sucked down the drain. Because why? Because it has partnered with the world and it has released its anchor from the word. That's what happens. That's the warning. If we begin to partner with the world and not the word, you can watch subtly as we begin to exchange definitions, untether ourselves from truth, and before you know it, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. These distinct things are important. It's not that other sins aren't. They're important too. But these are detrimental. They're shatterers. They're world breakers. If you've ever 
gauge, and maybe this is part of your story, and maybe God has redeemed it, or maybe it's part of it. If you've ever experienced someone who's allowed immorality, sexual immorality, into their marriage life, it's a world shatterer. These things crush, and they destroy, because they're idolatry. They're the worship of the self and of me and of my own definitions. And Paul says there are real and true consequences. And the consequences are real. There is a great day that is coming. And there's a great day of judgment and reckoning. And it is a terrifying day. It is a day that every single one of us, as the Bible tells us, will stand before God and we will have to be an account of all of our actions, thoughts, behaviors, breaths, and words. And for the believer, it's not a day of fear. It's not. It's a day in which that we welcome because we know that we stand justified through the relationship that we have in Jesus Christ. So we're not afraid of judgment because the repentant heart is saved and redeemed. But the consequences for the unrepentant heart are very real. And Paul is warning the church. This is not a sermon that he is preaching to the world. He's not standing in front of Walmart in Ephesus saying, repent or you're all going to hell. He's looking at a room just like this through a letter, if you will, as they read it, saying, church, here's the truth. Don't be deceived. Right? Don't be deceived. And don't partner with the world. Because he knows that some in the church already have and he knows that some are going to be washed away. The reality of all this is really challenging, right? Because we don't like to think about these things with those real consequences. We like to think that sin is just something that God kind of gets a little bit annoyed with, sweeps under the rug and says, well, as long as you're trying, it's okay. God hates sin. It's destructive, and he can't stand it, and he wants it purged out of your life. So I started thinking as we wrap all this up, or what are the real takeaways from all this? Like, what if we had to just sort of walk out with something? What would it be? Well, obviously, don't engage in sexual morality. I think we could all nod our heads at that. But really, what are those things? And they kind of fall in these three categories for me. The first one is this. Sexual morality, impurity, and greed, right, that cancer of the heart, they are um, they're not a joke, and they're extremely dangerous. So if you're in a place where you're wrestling with one of these, it's not something to be trifled with. However, there's total hope. God is a redeeming God. Confession and repentance are your greatest allies. Lord, I am sorry. I have broken your command. I love you. I am turning from it. And today is a brand new day. And so we get up and we fight and we return and we do it all again if we have to. And every day we make a move to walk in the other direction. These things are real and they're dangerous, but we have the call of confession and repentance and so there is hope. Don't walk out of here beat up in shame. Okay? Repent, confess, turn away. Today's a new day. If it happens again, confess and repent and repeat that cycle with truth in your heart. Not just because you can, but because you want to be different. All right? So that's the first thing, right? We've got that, that piece. Second one is this, the world will lie to you, and if it can't, it will shame you into submission. It will lie first. It will tell you that your definitions are wrong. It will tell you, like the serpent did, 
with empty words that surely that's not really what God said. God didn't say that. That Greek word has three different angles. And if you take the middle angle, it could possibly mean this one true thing over here. And so y'all are wrong, but God was right. And we'll lie to you. And we'll tell your kids things that are totally contrary to what we all know to be true. And if it can't lie to them, it will shame them and it will shame you. It will push you outside the margins. You'll have circles in your life that will no longer welcome you. You'll be called all kinds of names because that's what the enemy does. If he can't beat you, he will berate you. So for me, I simply say this. Don't give up and don't be afraid. David basically says this, right? The Lord is my stronghold. What can man do to me? So the belief is this. What in the world could this world possibly do to me if I truly trust in God? So the world will lie to you, and if it can't, it will try and shame you and distract you. Don't let it. It'll give you all kinds of things, saying things like, eh, Bible's outdated. It's ancient. It's talking to a different culture. Uh, yeah, it was. However, it withstands the test of time because it's the breath of God. And God's morality doesn't change. Ours does. The third thing that you can see is that you can't love the things that God loves and love the things that God hates at the same time. Most of us want to live here. We want to live in a place that we love the things that God loves, but we also love the things of the world that God hates. And we try and walk that line, and it is impossible. Impurity and immorality and greed, sin, they are things that God hates and you cannot love them. They are destructive and they will destroy you. Purity, morality, goodness, they are things that God loves and they are life-giving. As believers, we are called to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. If you don't hate the impurity and the immorality and the greed in your life, you are struggling to exist. You're trying to love the things of the world and love the things of God at the same time, and you are treading water, and that is super dangerous because eventually the water wins. You can only tread water long enough before those pools suck you down. You've got to anchor yourselves to the things that God loves. I'm going to fight for purity in my marriage. I'm going to fight for purity in my life, for, for morality. I'm going to fight to rid myself of greed. In fact, I'm going to become a giver of things. I want to find joy in it. As Paul said, I want to exchange these things for what? For thanksgiving. That's why Paul says it. Do you know what combats greed the most? Gratitude. Greed is actually an emotion of fear. Thanksgiving is an emotion of joy. Greed says, I'm afraid to give away. Thanksgiving says, I love giving away. My life, my heart, my resources, my time, my things, like, I, I love it. I'm not afraid of life without it because, Jesus, you are enough. The truth. No unrepentant, immoral, impure, or greedy person can inherit the kingdom of God. I didn't say it. It's right there. Right? That is the truth. There is no way around it. Paul says it. It is strong, and it is worded strongly, and he words it strongly for a reason. 
Right? He issues that absolute and total truth. And he gives a warning. Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived by the world, by empty words. Surely God didn't say that. Those are empty, hollow words. Surely the Bible doesn't say that. Surely the Bible doesn't mean that. If you stand on that, you will hate people. Those are empty and they're a lie. You can very much love people and love the morality of God. That's what God does. He loves creation, but he also loves them into purity and morality. And then finally, he gives this great warning, right? This command, this vital command, do not partner with the world. You can be associated with it. You can have friends in it. You can love it. You can even work and live in it. It's here. It's where God's placed us. But don't sow your heart to it. Don't let it infiltrate the purity places in you. Don't let it whisper its secrets into your ear. Don't become its lover. Right? We walk away knowing immorality, impurity, and greed are real, and they are super dangerous. Fight. Repent if you need to. Start again. Today's brand new. Fight. Do it. Don't let the world lie to you. Period. It's going to try and shove you around. It's going to try and deceive you. Anchor yourself to the word of God. Period. End of story. You can't love the things that God loves and love the things that God hates at the same time. Something's going to break. If God hates it, decide in your heart that you're going to hate it also. And you're going to work to purge it from your marriage, your life, your heart, your relationships, and everything else. I'm getting it out. There's no room for it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, that it is living and active, powerful and true. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would empower us, and that you would not let these words fall on empty ears. This is the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Tomorrow, or next week, excuse me, we get to see this beautiful kind of infusion of light. But we got to stick with the warning first because the warning is important. There are consequences to our actions, and those consequences are real. So, Lord, let us be a lover of the things of God and not be deceived. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning. buried beneath my rebellion I was lost without hope of redemption I was blind in my need for a savior oh but God I was crushed by the weight of my failure I was living a lie I created I was digging my grave without knowing, oh, but God, oh, but God, rich in mercy, how you love me too much to let me stay lost. My salvation sent from heaven and my sin to a cross. Then you gave me a truth worth believing And I traded my chains for your freedom Because you were the one that I needed Oh, but 
came through like the morning. And now this is my sure testimony. Oh, but God, oh, but God, rich in mercy, how you love me too much to let me stay lost. My salvation sent from heaven and my sin to a cross. So we, we take these words that are both powerful and true, and we, we don't shun them. We don't walk away from them. We're not afraid of them. We embrace this. For the believer, this is a message of hope, that God redeems, and God takes our confession, and he forgives, and he seals us, and he, he helps us walk the other way. If you're not a believer, if you haven't given your life to Christ, we encourage you to do so. Come visit with me. We'd love to share the life-redeeming hope of Christ with you, because there is hope, even in these difficult things. Don't shy away from the word of God. Embrace it. It is a message of hope and deliverance. Do not be deceived. Go in peace.